0: I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today, I'm talking to John Porter. He and his wife, Barbara, lead a house church in Clemson, South Carolina. John was converted on campus at Clemson in 1981, and from there, he went to Boston, Mexico City, Sao Paulo, Brazil, back to South Florida, before returning to Clemson in 2015. John's an advocate for house churches. In this episode, he talks about why he and Barbara left what he calls larger legacy churches, his experience as a house church leader, and his vision for the future. All this and more on the Rob Skinner podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's yeah. a delight to be with you. It really is. It's great to meet you. I know you know everybody, and, and I know a lot of people, but we've never met, and that's pretty strange in this in this kingdom that we're a part of. You usually kind of cross paths somewhere along the line.
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad we could meet today. Thank you for reaching out and the opportunity.
0: Yeah, I. Your name is so I've I've heard your name so so many times associated with um, Brazil. I think you're in Brazil. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, we
1: lived in Brazil for about nine
0: years. Okay, so my in-laws, my my son-in-law's parents, Dacio and Diana Marias. I don't know if you know them, but they were.
1: Yeah. Wow. I know them very well.
0: Yeah. So, uh, kind of an interesting connection there. Well, how did you become a Christian?
1: I was, uh, reached out to when I was a junior studying at Clemson university. That's, uh, I'm from a college town in South Carolina and my dad taught there and I went to school there. Uh, so I was, uh, reached out to and came to, it was a, Church that had been planted here by the Crossroads Church in Florida, uh, a couple John and Sandy Owen had started that church. So this is 1981. Wow! And uh, so I came, and really the first time I walked in the door, I I knew this was something different, and I was so excited about it. So I came back to church that night and immediately started studying the Bible with a couple Keith and Angie Mangrum, who uh, just uh, great couple and, uh, I just admired their life so much. And so I was just really, uh, impressed by the enthusiasm, the sincerity, and, uh, it was a church of about 60 people, probably 40 of those people were college students. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I just knew this is what I want to do. I think my parents had planted, uh, you know, a seed of faith in me. And, uh, so, but I really never was, inspired much by church up until that point but this seemed really different and so i studied the bible for about a month and a half or so uh got baptized in june of 1981 was able to go up to boston to a mission seminar and uh really decided at that point that someday i wanted to go into ministry be a missionary Uh, I was just incredibly inspired. And those were, I have really fond memories of that little church and those days and the people that uh, just surrounded me with God's love and taught me the Bible. So, anyway, I can say so much about that. Uh, But uh, that's, it was a crossroads planted church. I'm very thankful for that. And and then uh, moved up to Boston in 1986 to train in the ministry.
0: Okay, so if you could just give me the 30,000 foot overview of your your ministry career since since your conversion, if you could just in a couple minutes just share where you've been and just kind of the big picture, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, Well, a few years after becoming a Christian, uh, we made a connection with the Boston Church. Uh, Scott and Lynn Green had come down to visit, or Scott had to visit here, and then we visited the Boston Church. So uh, my uh, brother-in-law and sister, Jimmy and Maria Rogers, went up to Boston to train. At that point, I became the campus minister here in Clemson, did that for a little bit, but kept that association. So eventually, uh, I wanted to go into the I wanted to be a missionary, so Boston was, you know, one of the main places back in those days to go, so I would visit there, so I moved up to Boston in 1986, nine months later, went to Mexico City, Barbara and I got to know each other, mainly in Boston, we had met before, Uh, there's sort of a dispute among us of where we originally met, but anyway, we, we got to know each other working in campus ministry in Boston. And just was so impressed with her, as I still am. She's been such a tremendous blessing to me. Uh, and so anyway, I trained in the ministry in Boston. I was only there for nine months. And then I was, Barbara and I were invited to be on the mission team to Mexico City. So we moved there in 1987. And we were there for about 18 months. We got married in Mexico City. And then uh, Mike and Ambergite Tolliver were in Sao Paulo, Brazil at that time, but they were called uh, to go to Africa and they answered that call. So they needed somebody to take over the newly planted church in Sao Paulo. And so Barbara and I were asked if we would do that. And we happily did that. I had a little bit of a connection to Brazil. My father had done a sabbatical there and I had visited him in Sao Paulo. And uh, actually my stepmother is from uh, Sao Paulo. And so I was familiar with it. And so we were happy to go there. And that was just a wonderful experience. So we lived in Sao Paulo for four years. Our children were born there. They're brasileiros. That's where we got to know Dacio and Diana, your in-laws. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we, our children had some health challenges. So we moved back to Florida and that began a very uh, wonderful association with the Florida churches who were supporting missions in Latin America at the time. So, uh, but our children improved in their health situation, and so we were able to move back to Brazil for a second time and live there for first time four years, second time five years, and what, then in Mexico for a year and a half. And what, year,
0: what year was yeah. that that you came back to Florida and then went back to Sao Paulo?
1: Yeah, we came back to Florida in 1993 and then went back to Sao Paulo in 1998, and, and then we came back to Florida, uh, in 2003, uh, a little before, uh, all of the chaos occurred in our fellowship. Uh, we didn't know what was going to happen with all of that. Uh, that was, so we were in Florida through that time and we're, uh, very thankful for friends in Florida that, you know, helped us navigate all of that. And, uh, so, but we always sort of had our hand in missions, uh, while we were in Florida, uh, very involved in going back and forth to different places in South America, mainly in Brazil. And so we did that, uh, and, and were involved in the school of missions in Miami, uh, thoroughly enjoyed all of that and just some wonderful people. Uh, I guess, and I, I, maybe it would be helpful if I share a little bit. So I, that mission's background, I think, has informed my journey very much because I remember being in a large city in South America and a brother asking me, hey, when are you going to plant a church in my neighborhood? This is in a large city, and he was from a neighborhood about an hour and a half on the outskirts of the city. And I remember thinking in my head, maybe never.
0: Mm-hmm, right, <laughs> in my,
1: right. Because the in my mind, the way we did church, uh while helpful to many people it was also, you know, very, it took a lot of money. It took a lot of manpower. And so I began to explore what are, there must be a, a way that can be more viral and transformational. So that's, that's sort of how I got into the, I started, I stumbled into the house church world, uh, sort of, so it started kind of as a missions thing. And so we, uh, long story short we really we tried to sort of uh, implement a house church model in a what I call legacy church you know uh, what I mean by that is just a typical church and while everybody loved us and was very gracious and patient with us that really didn't fit in that. They're two very different models and I'll be happy to share more about that later and they're both needed and both necessary and so
0: yeah go ahead. So 2003 you came to Florida and then, have you been in Florida since that time? The last twenty-one years?
1: Oh yeah, we uh, we lived in Florida basically until two thousand and fifteen. Okay. We had a brief stint here in South Carolina, sort of in that transition, uh, but came back to Florida and were there for twelve years, uh, you know, between two thousand and three and two thousand and fifteen. So yeah, we uh, we were, that's where we were up until
0: 2015. And then where did you go from there?
1: Yeah, well, what happened, I finally, what I realized was that God had called, Barbara and I both felt this very strongly, God had called us to the house church world. Okay. And we just felt that, and, and I don't say, I don't think that's for everybody, but that's what we felt called to learn about, to develop, uh, and to explore. And so after trying to sort of uh, implement that in the legacy church, I realized that's probably not the best thing. So we decided to resign from our position uh, there in South Florida. And uh, we weren't mad at anybody or we, you know, it was more like we just feel called to this and it's a very different thing. And so uh, we, Looked into different places to move and talk. We wanted to partner with a, a legacy church uh, and maintain that connection. Uh, and so the place that, that ended up being most favorable to all this was a little church here, right here, where I'm from, in Clemson, South Carolina. This is a town of about 20,000 people. Uh, great couple, Keith and Abby Winship are here and lead what is called the Foothills Church. And we had known Keith from Florida. So he said, "Well, hey, we'll 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 let you do your experiment and partner with you and have you know uh, an association with you." So, and then my mother was here, and her my stepfather uh, and Barbara's parents moved in with us. So we came here, and that's how kind of the way God worked it out. And then my best friend from college, Greg Ergel, uh was here with his wife, Win, and they wanted to be a part of this, and so we came here and started to learn about and implement and explore uh, health church okay. in 2000, the end of 2015, really 2016.
0: So you've been there since 2016, and Barbara's with you. Backing it up a little bit, so you, you got married in 1986 in Mexico, or 1987? Eight. Uh, 88. 88. Okay, so you met Barbara in boston she comes from a brazilian background
1: no uh, she looks like she could be brazilian and speaks portuguese so well that a lot of times people think she is brazilian but she's actually italian american uh but she looks very latina
0: okay okay so you speak both spanish and portuguese yes we do wow Uh that's that's pretty amazing okay so what what, what was it? What was the trigger that you got, got you interested in the small churches? You had that, that interaction with that person back in Mexico City or in South America. Yeah. And, I mean, just to step out, you were leading a church in Florida. Was that? That's uh, correct. I don't know Broward County okay. Church or one of those churches.
1: Yeah, we were in the South Florida Church and had led it in different parts of the
0: South Florida Church. Okay, so that's pretty. It's a pretty big jump just to step out of that role. I'm sure you're leading hundreds of people, and then go. Oh, I'm going to go plan a church. I'm going to go lead a house church. Can you just talk about like the 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 chain of events, the the thought process behind all that?
1: Yeah, uh, very good question. I think I you know as a very ambitious and goal-oriented person, I think I was always trying to get the church to grow, you know, and I think I did that with like most everybody I know with good motives. And so we were constantly uh, thinking, you know, we need to grow, we need to save people. And, and it, what I realized it, it was, uh, I always was in search of, I read a book called the spontaneous expansion of the church by Roland, Alan and I always was thinking, "Wow, I wish this could be more spontaneous." It didn't seem spontaneous to me. It seemed like growth in the first century was a lot more spontaneous than what we were doing. That involved, uh, you know, a lot of hard work. And I'm not against hard work, but a lot of it took manpower, money, uh, and I thought, "Why can't this be more?" So I was in search of how can church be spontaneous and be viral. And so I started doing some study, and then I mentioned earlier the conversation I had with the brother, and just you know we were always trying to plant churches, which obviously that's a that's a good thing. Uh, But I felt like it took a, a long time to do that, so I began to study and read a book by a man named Wolfgang Simpson. Uh, read a couple of papers written by some brothers that had studied in graduate school and looking in the footnotes I saw a lot about house churches. So I began to explore that world Wolfgang Simpson's book was called the house church book. Just a little book And I remember Barbara and I both read it and we just looked at each other and said our life Lives are never going to be the same we, we just felt like it spoke to something that we had been yearning for uh, so Anyway, uh, it was through study, but I also think it was just the Holy Spirit working in our uh, lives. And, and so that's, that's how we, it started as a missions, a desire for missions to be more spontaneous, a way we could do that. And it's kind of honestly transformed. I still think that's important, an important component of house church. But it's transformed a bit. But I, I can elaborate more on that if you want. But that's that's a bit about how we got into the, the journey we're on.
0: Okay. There's about a million questions I want to ask you right now. So that this I'm glad we can get into this. First of all, your career is amazing. I mean the fact that you went to Mexico City, that that in alone, I, I know that Cheryl Hammer was also on that team. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that was inspirational when I was a young Christian. I became a Christian in 86, and I remember that going off. And Andrew G. and Barbara wrote a book about it. And, um, you know, there's just an amazing, amazing thing. Phil and Donna Lamb, those names just kind of come popping out. And then you're in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and they come back to Florida. So that's pretty, pretty amazing. Now, your wife, didn't she go to Harvard?
1: She did. Barbara graduated from Harvard Law School.
0: Oh my gosh, I, I've heard about that so many times. Like this woman is like super brilliant. So uh, she, I bet she gives you a run for the money. Oh man, she uh, <laughs> takes me higher. She's okay, incredible. All right, so w- can you tell me a little bit about how it's gone since you got back to to Clemson? Like, what were your goals going into it? How has the church grown? What does the church look like now?
1: Yeah, so. That's a very good question, and as far as the journey of what it has developed into, so it started off like I thought. Okay, we're going to come here, and we're going to start a house church, and then that's going to multiply into other house churches, and then this, you know, was all about missions. And and I'm not saying. Please understand, I'm not saying that's not important. I think we got here and as we studied more, we're like, wow, this is the way the church operated really for the first 300 years of, you know, Christianity. Uh, I think there's good, I'm not a scholar, but I have done a lot of study and most scholars I think would, would, would say that for the first 300 years, people met in house churches and it grew like crazy. And uh, and there there are reasons for that, that I can get into cultural reasons that were occurring then. So we... Again, we were thinking like that. And then we saw, wow, there's biblical patterns here. This is the way they gathered in the first century. They had meetings that were more participatory. And so we, ha- we went kind of on a doctrinal uh, focus of why you need to do this. And really, in, in the past couple of years, maybe two or three, really since COVID, I think this has become, for, for, for us, more about transformation, and how people really grow and heal and become whole and become more like Jesus. So, you know, the way that I would describe that, like what, what is this and why? So yeah, we have had baptisms. Yeah. I network with other people in house churches, but the main thing that we're about is, is personal transformation becoming like Jesus. And to me, this is a really important thing. Uh, sort of that I think this is about, you know, it's the second half of the Great Commission that at least speaking for me, I felt like I had neglected teaching people to obey everything. Uh, So let me, if I could just say like Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 talks about, we're supposed to prepare God's people for works of service so that, so that they can attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And, And so I've really, think of utmost importance is people becoming spiritually mature, being whole, healing. And I'll give you a definition that we've come to use that we got from a man named Jim Wilder, who's written quite a bit on this. When you're spiritually mature, you can spontaneously love your enemies, Uh, like not just putting on the behavior of loving your enemies, but that's what happens from your heart. And so, how does transformation occur? And I'd be glad to talk more about that. But uh, yeah, so I network with people. I started a nonprofit called From House to House, and I network with other people that are in house churches, and especially around COVID, I guess that started you know, growing some. There's a shift going on in our culture uh, related to how people do church. Uh, it's not just house church, but people are exploring all kinds of things, Uh and I think that's important to allow people to do that and to encourage it. Uh, you don't have to agree with it. And so I network with quite a few people that are in the house church world, mainly people from, you know, ICOC background. Uh, that number seems to be growing. I can't really put a number on it Yeah. And so, and we've, yeah, our group, we have a group of about 15 people here that gather in mainly in my home, but sometimes we meet in other homes as well, and that's just been a that's been transformational for me. I'll just speak for me, and I think they would say for them as as well. And I'd be happy to talk about more of what that's been like and what that looks like. Uh, but this is our focus is really uh, helping people become like Jesus. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't evangelize. That means we don't think that's not important. I, I certainly do. It's just a little bit of a different way of going about it that's quite different from what I've done historically.
0: When you talk about networking, are you, are you talking about like people like John Sherwood in North Carolina?
1: Uh, I'm not specifically talking about John, although I have talked to John on this uh, journey. We communicated. But people that are, there's all sorts of Different okay. things going on.
0: Uh, I interviewed people, John, and he's got a house church network up in the hills uh, near Asheville, yeah, north yeah, I've heard north, about north Carolina. So I, I was wondering if he was a part of that. So do you do you consider yourself part of the ICOC? Are you still connected to the, to the larger family of churches?
1: Yeah, I, I consider my definitely that's my that's my family. Uh, the ICOC is my my church family. I think it's fair to say I'm not really a part of the institution. Uh, but uh, but to me, church is a relational thing. So, yeah, I I appreciate what's going on in the ICOC. The, the, those are the people that have uh, been my best friends for, you know, over 40 years. Uh, and I appreciate what they are doing. I am doing it quite different in, in terms of how sort of my vision of what uh, church is, but that's okay. I think both models are needed.
0: In 2004, 2005, I planted a church in my hometown. It also had 20,000 people, was a small college town in Oregon, and we were there for about eight years. I sold real estate during that time. So I can understand the appeal of a small church. And And so that's that's really interesting. I was That's why I was, one of the reasons why I was really looking forward to talking to you. And these things you're talking about, about Desire for greater growth, greater penetration into our country and, and around the world, are certainly things that I think about a lot in multiplying disciples, leaders, and churches. So I really respect the 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 attitude, you know, and the desire to try to how can we replicate what we see the the dynamism in the early church. What, have you received some criticism from what you are doing?
1: I think it would be fair to say that I, you know, people look on it, they're, they're perplexed by it at times and, you know, uh, sometimes I think what's what's happened is, you know, sort of historically, a lot of times when people went to house churches because they were mad at somebody in the big church. <laughs> and And so it kind of got a name of, well, that's just for people that have bad attitudes and i don't encourage people to start a house church because they're mad at somebody
0: you know that is so funny you brought that that's one of the questions i just wrote down you know i see i see this happen a lot is i see people who are i don't i don't know disillusioned they're upset they they have Typically, it's relationship conflict with the primary leader or the or the church, and so they pull off. And oftentimes, they're, they're leaders, they're they're powerful in and of themselves, but they form kind of a bubble wrap community where they they want to avoid any kind of conflict from the past. And so they have like a little self contained situation. And I I find it's, I mean, it's good that they're meeting together, but on on the the downside, it seems like. It's such a waste of talent, and it's sad that the relationship problems don't get resolved.
1: Yeah, well, and I got there's another thing that goes on I, I I agree with what you're saying. I think uh, at least I'll share what happened to me one time we We had somebody uh, in a church near where I was living that wanted to start a house church and and I was totally against it. You know, this is going back maybe fifteen, sixteen years ago. Because I thought it wasn't unifying to do that, and and so I think we've got this challenge where we tend to think one church, one city, one church government, one city, uh, that we can't be unified in Christ unless we're under the same leadership in a in a geographic area or city, and and I, I think unity can be beyond ch- local church leaderships. It's a spiritual thing. Uh, we don't have to be under the same church government. That's one of the main things I think I've learned. But I was the I was bad at that. You know, I, it's like everybody has to do the same thing. Where mm-hmm. this is, we, it's almost like we had franchise rights for the cities we lived in.
0: Exactly.
1: And people have to be in that, and I don't. I don't look at it like that anymore. And you know, I'm thankful for God's grace in my life for bearing with me and being patient with me and. Uh, teaching me, I, I can say, I think we we need a lot of different kinds of church. Uh, I am thankful, as I've said, for legacy church. I am thankful for people that explore house church. I think we need to appreciate one another uh, and and really root for one another to to do well. Uh, so that's that's where I am now, but I certainly didn't used to be like that, and I uh, have God's had to work on me. to to open my eyes up.
0: It's a tricky situation because our family of churches got its start with the idea of planting pillar churches. And then from that expanding into the local region and, and which I think it was a great plan. And I've talked about this on previous podcasts at the same time, it really limits ourselves because what I think is that it's come to be interpreted one church in one metropolitan area which is a mixture of could be literally hundreds of, of cities within a metropolitan area and so we're very limited because it the growth slows down once a church reaches a certain size and I think about a place like Los Angeles or, or New York and you've got hundreds of cities in, in the in the area that are not getting reached because it's it, there's a there's a paradigm there's a template in place that that precludes that so it's a challenge at the same time you want to have a unified church you don't want it to be just you know everyone's hating on each other that's 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 a real challenge there let me just add john let me ask you this how do you support yourself
1: uh i work part-time as a bookkeeper uh with with a brother uh and I've enjoyed that very much. I've, I've done a lot of different things. That's what I currently do. And then I have my nonprofit. And Barbara works for Hope Worldwide. So that's that's how we uh, support ourselves at, at this time. I still consider myself a minister, but certainly doing it uh, differently. I, over the past years, I went back and got a second engineering degree, worked for a while as an engineer. Uh, I worked for the Department of South Carolina Department of Transportation for a while, and uh, it was all good, but I I am thankful to have a work-from-home job now that I can do part-time, and it's freed me up uh, a little bit to do uh, more ministry than some of the other jobs that I had that I was thankful to God for, uh, but this this has been a good fit.
0: Are you semi-retired right now? Do you consider yourself semi-retired?
1: No, not at all. Uh, I'm not, uh, close to being financially retired and really that's a whole other discussion. What is, what is retirement? Mm -hmm. You you know, uh, I really want to develop my nonprofit. It's called from house to house, which is to help people how to gather in their homes and have gatherings that are transformational for them and help. Here's what happens, uh, rob you know a lot of times people they sort of feel like they they're being called to a different form of church and sometimes that's house church but what i've learned is just because people go to a living room uh it doesn't mean everything's going to be great (laughs) right and so there are certain we come into a living room and we haven't developed maybe relational skills learning how to love each other house church is completely different are very different, I should say, from from Legacy Church. And so my nonprofit, and th- this is why, that's what I would like to do. What, I don't really look at that as retirement, but I wish I could do that full time uh, and, and help people with that. And I do that part-time now.
0: Okay, so the church that was there in Clemson at the time, you call it the North Valley Church or something like that? The, the foothills church. foothills church so is that a separate church from what you're doing or are you part of that church
1: yeah it's a totally separate church and and yet we're, i am friends with the leader we have coffee together we go to their gatherings occasionally uh we have people that have uh done things in their campus ministry activities. We've done hope things together. So yeah, we, we definitely have a friendship and a partnership and appreciation for what one another are doing. And yet we're totally two separate entities. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to come here because I think that's one of the most important things for house churches and legacy churches to learn is how to respect and appreciate one another. And I'm very thankful for Keith and Abby Winship and the Foothills Church. Uh, that they have been that way with with us, and we've done our best to be that way uh, with them. So I feel totally unified with them, even though we have a different expression of church.
0: Okay, so they are the traditional stage and row church, you know, like the building type church, and you're the house church, so there's no friction between the two churches in a, in a town of 20,000?
1: No. And I can't say maybe somebody feel is uncomfortable with that setup, I can't speak for everybody, but uh, for the people that I'm close to, uh, I don't feel any friction.
0: Okay. What What would you say to the person, John, you and, and Barbara, you guys have led tons of churches, big churches, you've got this massive amount of talent and experience. What would you say to the person to say, hey, you're wasting your talent and ability in a, in a group of 15 when you could be influencing hundreds, maybe thousands?
1: Yeah, well, I think it goes back to how you really think you can uh, influence. And I I think it's, you know, for most of my ministry life, I thought that involved a lot of numbers. And, you know, I thought that involved baptizing a lot of people and i'm not I'm not saying that's uh not important, but I think my metric was off my metric for many years was the church needs to grow and now my metric is people that God places in my orbit I want to do my best to help them become like Jesus and that's based on the verse I read earlier, Ephesians four eleven and twelve and other places so. The metric, so I think my metric, I'll just speak for me, was off uh, and constantly focusing on that metric. I do think it made a lot of noise for several years, but I saw that that wasn't a sustainable metric. And and so it worked for a while. And, it, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying anything new, but even within our fellowship, we had a lot of growth in the 70s and the 80s and the first part of the 90s. But really it started to slow down at that point. And, and, and then, and I tracked all of our growth and have you know looked at it pretty intently, maybe not as intently as some other brothers have. Uh, so what what is sustainable? I, I'm more interested in what things are gonna be like a hundred years from now than I am, what they're gonna be like this year and I, I really believe that the best way to change the world is to change people, uh, help people transform. And so that, to me, involves what's transformational for people involves two main things, experiencing God's love and experiencing one another's love. And and so anyway, I could talk more about that, uh, but I, I think God's the one that adds to his kingdom, that adds to the church. He's already at work. Um, and so I think we've neglected, it's just my opinion. And I, I really maybe should just speak for me. I think I neglected the slow, messy work of getting in there with people, focusing on them, I And mean, what did Jesus do? I always think about that. He, f- he spent most of his time with 12 people, I mean i think that accusation could have been made of him what are you doing jesus why don't you get involved in the sanhedrin or why don't you become a you know an active pharisee and get on the council and work the system And, and he didn't do that he picked 12 people his mission was men not trying to do a lot of numbers so i i was the you know the worst of sinners in that area of trying to grow the church fast, thought that always was what we were supposed to be doing. And while well intentioned, and I'm not questioning anybody's motives when I say this, but I—that's I, not the way I think it long term uh, will will grow the best. I, I may not know the fruit of my labors in in my lifetime, uh, but I, but I I believe very much in what I'm doing. But it's hard at times, you know. I can still fall back into the old patterns. A lot of times when people ask the question, how's it going? What they really mean is, how's it growing? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's so much more uh, to church life than, grow- than uh, numerical growth and saving people. Uh, I-, I think salvation involves the transformation of people into the image of Jesus. And I know we believe that, but the work to do it is important.
0: Well, along with that, what's what's the most amazing miracle you've seen? Like, what something that could only be God's power? What like what have you experienced?
1: Well, what I've experienced, what I would say to that is, people uh, that really are glad to be with each other, that are you know uh, healing of all sorts of emotional problems, and I'm seeing. I've seen and experienced, you know, personal healing from all, all sorts of uh, trauma and uh, difficult things that have happened. And uh, to me, that's the miracle when when lights come on in that area. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to say that our group is perfect in that area. We're still people. We're still sinners. We still fall back into our old patterns. But, but I, I, to me, we... I remember when i became a christian it's like for those first i don't know a few months or few years it's all very exciting and new right and you're you're stopping all these horrible behaviors you used to have and you, you just think you're kind of going to coast and ride the wave of you know into heaven and then you hit, it's like you hit a wall, or mm-hmm. at least I do. You hit a wall emotionally. Maybe you have health problems. Maybe your children have health problems. Some people have marriage problems. You know, we kind of, life gets us, and we can become depressed, and we can become disillusioned. We don't have the fruit, the miracles when people have the fruit of the spirit. Uh, when when that becomes the, the default setting of their lives and and not other things. And so what I saw was, you know, a lot of, very committed Christians uh, pursue getting counseling, which I'm not I'm not against counseling at all. That's not my point. I, I just think it speaks to issues that that uh, we haven't uh, maybe developed or addressed enough in the church. And so the miracle is shalom. The miracle is people that, I, that I've seen heal in, in this journey uh, in, in my little group. And of course, you'd have to interview them to really get uh, verification of that. But I think they would tell you that. That's the biggest uh, miracle.
0: What you got into it originally because you, you know, wanted to grow. You wanted to ha- expand the growth. But something seems like it's changed since since that time. It seems like the, you know, the original impetus was, hey, we need to grow faster these larger churches are slowing down, but it seems like something has changed. Like, you know, to, what I hear you saying is now the focus is more on just uh, Christian health wellness, and, which is a big trend right now. I see in our family church, not only in our family churches, all over the place, just, you know, wellness, sabbaticals, Sabbath rest, you know, mental health, yeah. all, all kinds of things kind of adding to the original focus on, Hey, let's just save souls here. So how do you, I mean, I guess I guess I'd say, how do you balance those two things? You, you, you came into it with one goal and now you're at a different spot.
1: Yeah, well, I think the way I look at it is I believe wholeness, wellness, healing, becoming, attaining to the whole fullness of Jesus is what will do the other part. And, and I think we neglected, I don't think we realized. And again, I'll speak for me, I don't think I realized how much that hurt my well-intentioned goal of wanting Christianity to spread by not helping people be whole, by not uh, taking the time to help people uh, through that. And, and And also I think we're suffering more as a culture, if I might just provide you know, some things that I've learned that I think about that, you know, uh, for y- the last 120 years or so, we've, we've been undergoing an experiment in the West anyway, uh, Western culture, where we have pursued more getting a job, leaving our extended family, not living near our extended family, not living in a walkable world. you know we've gone from an agrarian society to more of an industrial society and so we're all disconnected uh, and then and so for many years the our current system of doing church, you could assume community was present outside of church. In other words, people like my I'll take my mother as an example. She grew up in a farming community in Tennessee. She lived near her uncles and aunts. And cousins and grandparents, they all, they, they all live very near each other. They were part of a church that was a legacy church model that had sermons and sat in rows. And that didn't affect them because they had community outside of church. And what I've learned, emotional maturity, life maturity, spiritual maturity, so much of that comes when the different generations are together and you have people that that know that are gonna love you unconditionally, that know you, that don't mind telling you things that you need to grow in, mm-hmm. but there's an atmosphere of trust and I'm not gonna leave you. And so I've, I, we, we've we abandoned all that in our culture uh, and it's not going well. I mean, if you just look at the mental health statistics and, and you look at the way we live and how lonely we are, and of course COVID brought that out even more, and so I think everybody has a hunger, at least that I talk to, everyone wants, they see a need for deeper relationships and community. And yet I think we don't understand necessarily how deep that needs to go and how much we've, and I'm just kind of wading into this world. The the the, the other thing I'd say about that, Rob, is that the 1st century world was an oikos world. That means an extended family world. People lived in extended family structures in the ancient Mediterranean world. And so a lot of scholars believe, and I think there's a good bit of data to support this, that the way the church spread so much was through those pre-existing oikos structures.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and so they would present a message to it, the message of Jesus. And, and, and when people would have to leave their extended family structure because they became Christians, they would go into a new oikos, a mm-hmm. Christian oikos. Mm-hmm. And, and so that oikos is still important. So a lot of, you know, the, all the, deriv- the the descriptions of church involve a lot of derivatives derivatives of the word oikos in the New Testament, principally in the book of Ephesians. And so, extended family is important. Multi generational uh, people that are together, and obviously, I'm just wading into this world. We were thankful that for a time we had my my, my in laws, my son during COVID was living here. We had three generations under <laughs> one roof, and I think God did that because yeah. I saw, wow, this is really good. Uh, so, it's not just a church thing, but I think there's a larger cultural.
0: Thing going on. I totally agree with you. I mean, people are just so isolated, especially guys. I think in particular, guys are just so, so isolated. It's interesting. You mentioned that Oikos. And I remember when, uh, who was it? The Tranchels, Bob and Lori planned the church in Amman, Jordan, and they went there having a hard time, hard time reaching out. They ran into a person who had been baptized in the San Diego church, had gone back by himself and, converted his extended family, and that became the the core of the, that Jordan church, and I think it probably still is, but it's, it's so true. I mean, even in some countries, that still exists. So very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, so, well, you're so right with that. I know in Latin America, they live more like I'm describing and like you're describing, and so we would see that. I can think of you know, different cities. that were churches grew incredibly, and they grew through the extended family structures. You know, a lot of times in Latin America, families still live together. I can think of a neighborhood in Sao Paulo where they, they you know, the whole neighborhood just it spread throughout the whole neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We we really didn't, we didn't even have to share our faith there. Meaning the missionaries, it was just like this one family. Uh, I'll tell you a story about a guy who was in Mexico City who had to, he was from Bolivia and he had to leave Mexico City. His visa expired and he graduated from, uh, he was a a doctor actually. He went to medical school in Mexico City and he had to go back and we counted the guys a fall away because he left and he wasn't going to one of our churches where he went back to in, in Bolivia. Well, about five or six years later, I get a call from this guy and he's telling me he's got a church of 60 people there <laughs> in his little city. And I, I used to say the most successful church planning we've ever had uh, was one we didn't plant. <laughs> uh, and I always think of him with fondness because he went back and he just reached out to family and friends and had it was just him and the Holy Spirit. And that's the other thing that got me thinking. This is more, I think, the way uh, things can be.
0: Okay, so let's – I could just talk – I mean, my wife Pam was on the Cairo-Egypt mission team back in, I believe, 88 – and they were so frustrated because they weren't converting any women, and the guys were converting a bunch of guys. And then all of a sudden, all the sisters of the guys who were becoming Christians started to study the Bible, and it was it grew through family. So I, I'm in 100% agreement. Let's talk about this, because I guess the question I'd ask you is, how can churches, house churches like what you're talking about, be a viable option for expansion and growth. Like if you, if John, if somehow you were just appointed to be, you know, the kingdom, kingdom director, okay, for future growth, how would this fit in? What, how would you see the kingdom expanding considering our, our traditional model of the stage and then the rows and pews and that kind of a, a format? What's your vision how do you see the church, the, the church growing and expanding?
1: That's a, that's a great question. Well, I think it's not like the things we do in Legacy Church are bad. I mean, I, I think sermons are great. I think singing together is great. I think large gatherings are very inspirational and certainly provide something that House Church doesn't. My opinion is that our emphasis is off that again, going back to my cultural analogy, we we do church in a way that assumes community is present outside of church. And I know we have small groups, but I think we need to give that more emphasis. Uh, just because people meet, you know, I, I've been a part of large churches that would try to do house church on Wednesdays or even once a month on a Sunday, and it would be great at the beginning, but what I have typically observed After a few weeks or a few months, uh, that tended people tended to not want to do that anymore. uh, In in a lot of cases, and I think that's because they weren't they were bringing their legacy church practices into the house church. So my vision and what I think is needed is people need to learn relational skills in small groups. Let me give you an example. I'm not a brain scientist but from my study from a lot of books our brains run on joy like if you don't have joy transformations virtually impossible we tend to think you we change because we're gonna be taught the truth and then we're gonna make decisions and have a lot of willpower and that's how we change and i do think that's part of the equation of change but let me give you another part that i've learned that relates to house church and is an answer to your question Our brains are constantly scanning the earth for where am I going to be filled with joy? And so in a small group, if you're meeting with a small group, joy comes is the emotion you feel. I like this definition when somebody is glad to be with you even though they may know all your problems on your worst day, they are glad to be with you. And it comes from when you believe God is glad to be with you. You don't think God's just disappointed in you or God's mad at you or God's thinking you need to do so much more, but you really experience God is glad to be with you. And then you're with a group, small group of people that you really feel are glad to be with you. I used to lead large churches, and even though I would be leading and preaching and It wasn't what I would call a transformational experience for me. I'm not saying it was bad, but you have to experience. Why did Jesus said the first and second greatest commandment? Love God. Love one another. What was what before time? What was going on? You had a community. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. What was Eden? It's the Garden of Delight. And so we don't create enough experiences and train people. And how to be glad to be together. How do you just express to people, I'm glad to be with you. And so we've developed some and learned uh, from a lot of people, some exercises to do that. Some things that we do with each other to make our uh, gatherings what I believe causes the transformation. So I w- I think churches not only need to go to small groups and do the same things they do, and but... But all which I think is good. Don't don't get me wrong. I think that's good. But we, we underestimate how because for the last 120 or so years, we've not lived in extended families that people don't really know how to function together. So what I've seen a lot of times, small groups are are not very healthy and not very encouraging for people. Uh, and also can be very taxing for whoever is the leader of that small group.
0: Right. Because right. we
1: haven't learned how to develop that. So, so over time, it's not encouraging.
0: Right. Right. Because so I think
1: we need to, short answer to your question is we need to not only go to small groups more, emphasize it more, but also it takes a lot of training to teach people how to function in a small group. Mm-hmm. The small group itself, that's just going to reveal challenges.
0: <laughs> right, right. I've been part of small, small churches most of my Christian life, and you know, there's some real drawbacks of small churches as as well as benefits. I mean, they're flexible; they're easy to make changes. There's a lot of really positive things, but there's also negative things. You know, one very negative person can be very destructive in a small church. It could, you know. Anyway, there's I could go off on, on right. That no, tangent. it can be
1: to be fair it can be way worse i mean i can understand why somebody thinks we tried house churches that didn't work i've heard that so many times and i say you're right it it won't work if you don't train people you know
0: there's a limit you've got four walls in the church it's it's tempting to become insular and like you know it's just us we're happy we're we're content and it's hard to avoid the temptation to go hey we're we're good and we're set, and then all of a sudden, evangelism just drops off. It's, it becomes a a non necessity. How do you deal with that? How do you how do you tackle that? How do you maintain the the command to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them, versus what you are talking about, which is to teach them to obey? How do you keep those together in a small in a small environment?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I I think when people experience God's love and one another's love and its transformation, what did Jesus say? They will know your disciples by your love for one another. When when communities are developed that really have developed this love for one another and then it's transformational for people, I don't think you have to tell people. It's not about them obeying the Great Commission. They're going to it's like the blind man that got cured. It's, it's like the leper who got cured. Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Right. And because we've had to do a lot of internal work. uh, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of times I I tell a group, this isn't a good time to bring people. Mm. That's one of the biggest things. And that may sound crazy, but I I say this, this, you know, we need to work on ourselves for a, 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 a time. And, and so, but people want to bring people if they don't want to, if it becomes a duty, then I think that's a sign that something could be wrong. Mm-hmm. If helping other people and sharing our faith becomes something we have to be held accountable for, I think it's a sign that maybe we're not healing. I think overflow is important. I think a lot of people do, and this may be drifting a bit, but I think it relates. We Sometimes we do ministry, uh, from a bad place instead of a good place. In other words, we're trying to compensate for some. Oh, I'm depressed, so I'm going to go. You know, you've heard, maybe you've heard the phrase, you can baptize your way out of any problem.
0: I've heard that before.
1: And I think, you know, we, th- we kind of operated like that. Well, you're depressed. Well, if you just got out and shared your faith and gave to other people, you'd feel better. And that may work in the short term because it gets your mind off your problems. But ultimately, I haven't seen that that's very transformational for people to just reach out. And how about if we really helped you get in touch with God's love for you and helped you be around people that really are going to love you and be glad to be with you. And you're going to be joyful. And you experience that for a while, you're, you're going to want to share that. And so, but, but that's sometimes slow, messy, painful work to do that. Hmm. And it's not glorious. And, and so, but but I think that's what we're called to do. That that's what I believe. I think God's job is to grow the church. And he, he our job is to help one another and love one mm-hmm. another. And I think the book largely is a book about God's love for us, not a book of what I need to do. And I say that as somebody who was kind of the world's worst that I need to read this and obey it and do it. But I was I was only obeying certain parts of it and maybe neglecting some of the parts that would transform my inner life.
0: Right. I like what you're saying about being in a, in a healthy environment to help people to grow, to experience more of God's love and to grow. The, the difficulty I find is how do you multiply that? How do you, we still need to save the world. We've got we've got billions of people that need to hear the gospel. And it seems to me that's just be so tempting to go, okay, I'm going to fix myself even though I'm broken and I'm never going to be a hundred percent fixed while people are, are dying. They're going to hell and we don't really have a, a plan to get out there and and multiply it. So that's, that's kind of what I'm wrestling with. As I'm talking to you, I go, I love house churches. I've been in house churches. I love small churches. You know, I, helped organize a small church conference but i feel like there's always got to be a plan to at least if the size of the small church doesn't grow itself if it's like you know 15 or whatever then we have to multiply it so do do you have a like a plan to multiply what you're doing so that you can expand and and achieve you know jesus's vision to save this world
1: very good question well i think it's important first of all to realize that our current plan has not worked so i would start with that and you know i mean our current plan of we're gonna invite a lot of people or we're gonna have exciting events with inspirational speakers and inspirational worship i mean depending on which demographer you study it's something like between only in the, in the United States on any given Sunday, only like 5% of the people are in a church service. All the, we have to realize that culturally, there's a huge shift going on. Right. What we're doing is not getting people's attention. And that's not just in our movement. That's that's broad. Yes. And there right. are mega churches where I live. There are a lot of mega churches. But what's happening, smaller churches are dying and people go to mega churches and so they really aren't indicative of what's going on culturally. So right. I think, you know, Josh Packard's book, Church Refugees, you might be familiar with. But he says there's 65 million people in the United States that have left Legacy Church, and they say they are never going back. So one of the largest, and yet many of these people still love Jesus. You know, they, they've left the church, but they haven't left Jesus, at least in their intention so i would argue that the church is the largest mission fee <laughs> i mean that's one thing so i think we've got to realize our current model while well-intentioned and believe me i i did that and invested in that i thought if we do expository sermons if we just make it better if we have better leadership right if we call people to commitment if we have accountability if we raise more money and plant more churches if we are bold I mean I I did everything I could think of. And there might be some short-term success, but if you look at it over the long haul, I'm talking about it over 30 years or 40 years, you see wow, that eventually there there were issues there. And we all kind of go back to our glory days uh yeah and remember it like we're just we keep trying to do the same thing over and over again. So I think right. the first thing I would say is we have to realize at least from my perspective, our current plan has not worked. And I mean, the plan we've historically had. And, and, and I'm not saying that never works or that churches, some churches aren't doing better with that than, than others. But I, but I think in general, not just in the ICOC, but in, but, you know, the broader uh, church culture, that has not worked. So, how do we evangelize the world? I think we have to do what Jesus said. I mean, that is the Great Commission. That is part. I think we've neglected the second half of the Great Commission. That's what I, to me, that's the biggest thing. We we didn't do that and haven't done that. And so we kind of underestimate all of the, the, the spiritual immaturity that exists, uh, the trauma that exists in people, the the, the, just the lack of, it's, and I don't equate spiritual maturity with just Bible knowledge. That's the other way. If, you, if people know their Bibles are going to be mature, you know, there's, there's a lot more to it right. than that. Remember my definition of maturity that I like from Jim Wilder, when somebody can spontaneously love their enemies. Mm. And when, when we create the right kinds of people, uh, the, the mission takes care of itself when, when we do what God says so that he can change hearts, uh, if people, then the mission will take care of itself, but that takes time. And a lot of times we get, we grow weary of doing that and we give up.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time. And, and uh, you know, I want to wish you every blessing in expanding your church and your network of churches that you're trying to help grow. Let me ask this final question: What advice would you give to those who want to make their life count?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, I can say what's helped me is the, the the first thing that comes to mind is I had to realize that. God really loves me, and that may sound like an obvious thing, but to me it wasn't obvious. And I I read the Bible as a book of, it's going to tell me what I need to do, and I, I need to do it. Right. I think the Bible is principally a book about how much God loves us. And I think if people get that, then they can begin to hear God's voice, and He will call them into all sorts of exciting places. And, and certainly their life will count. I think another kind of more, maybe more practical thing is I, I encourage people to be a lifelong learner, to continue to explore, to experiment. Uh, I, I've had to learn to listen to God's voice. I know for me, stepping out on faith and resigning my job that I'd had for over 30 years in the Legacy Church and stepping into the house church world, uh, that's been I believe that the most significant thing that I've done outside of the decision to be a Christian. And so, but a lot of times we, we let fear dominate instead of God's love and his voice. And I Mm. think they go together. If I understand God's love for me, he's going to take care of me. Then I'll do the Abraham type of things. I'll step out on faith. I'll go to a place that I've never been before. I will get out of my comfort zone. Uh, not just gritting my teeth, but believing that God is going to take care of me. So I think I, I talked to a lot of people who were kind of, it's like they're hearing a faint voice from God to do something that's exciting or unusual or risky, but then they go, eh, can't do it yet. And and that could be true. But I think a lot of that is because they really, uh, they don't, you know, I have just had to continue to learn. This is way different than I thought it was going to be. I thought. I went from thinking things were all figured out and this is what we're going to do to thinking, wow, about all I know is that God really loves us and that we really need to learn to love one another. Those are like the only two things that I feel like I really know. So I, I think focus on God's love, listen to his voice and continue to learn. Don't feel like you've, you know, we've not cornered the market on truth. Right. Uh, And so those are just some things that I think are helpful
0: to That's fantastic. I mean, I totally agree with you. I feel like as a young Christian or as an older Christian, being able to slow down and take the time to understand how much God loves you is important. In fact, one of the things I'm doing this year in my own walk with God is just forcing myself. I know it sounds funny. Forcing myself to spend at least 10 to 15 minutes just thinking about that very topic. You know God's love, His promises, His greatness, huh. and just what I what I thought this morning is just enjoying God, just enjoying my relationship with Him, and allowing myself the luxury of meditating on that and spending fifteen minutes just thinking about what I have, who I am in my relationship with God. I'm a son of God, and I I feel like that's so critical for anyone who wants to make it long term as a disciple. Otherwise, you just get caught up, choked out, burned out in all sorts of all sorts of traps, like Paul Paul Bun, is it Paul Bunyan? John Bunyan talked about in his book Christian um Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress. Exactly. There's just so many traps. It's hard to make it all the way to heaven. It's it's difficult to get there, like Paul talked about. So and then being a lifelong learner and then listening to God's voice and being able to take those steps of, of faith is so important. So, hey, John, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. And, you know, it's really nice to get to know you. And I look forward to someday meeting you in person. Me
1: too. Thank you so much for reaching out. It's been a pleasure to be with you.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Here's how you can help support the program. First, hit the subscribe button and send a link to your friends. Secondly, read and review one of my books. How to plant and grow a church, or Courage, how to make this life count. You can find both of them on Amazon.com. Finally, support the Rob Skinner podcast with a gift. The link is in the show notes. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.